Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Greg Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, Wilmington, Delaware. And during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the interesting research being done by folks using the Hagley Library collections, especially researchers who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships. One such scholar is joining me today, Sean Delahanty, is a PhD candidate in the Johns Hopkins University, and he is working on a dissertation project titled The Shareholder Value Revolution. Sean, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Great to be here. Oh, that's great. Um, let's jump right into your project. What do you mean when you refer to the shareholder value revolution? So that's the term that I use to describe the rise of an idea that the primary purpose of a business corporation is to maximize the value of its shareholders' investments. Mm -hmm. And I refer to this as a revolutionary change in American political economy because I see this is not simply a matter of corporate finance or even corporate strategy, but rather a redefinition of what the business corporation is and mm. what its function within American society is all about. So the project is trying to tell the story of this change from where the shareholder value maximization came from why companies decided to go along with this idea, and then what's that, what that has meant for American companies, American workers, and American society more broadly. Hmm. Uh, well, before we unpack that a little bit further, what would you say this revolution was reacting against? Uh, what was the political economy of the American corporation prior to this moment you, you are working on? Yeah. In a broad sense, it's what we might consider the New Deal political order. Mm -hmm. And so on the governmental side, that involves things like a moderate amount of government regulation, uh, sort of a Keynesian managed economy on the macroeconomic side. Now, mm -hmm. on the business side, business has a really important role to play in this New Deal order. And it's all wrapped up within a mid-century conception of what's called corporate social responsibility. And this idea of corporate social responsibility, or CSR, as it was understood in the 50s and 60s, is pretty different from what we might understand today. So socially responsible corporations in the New Deal order are seen as sort of these institutional pillars of American society. And their job is primarily to reinforce social order and provide for the economic growth and stability that will allow the United States to continue functioning smoothly, growing, sort of enjoying all the spoils of the post-World War II moment. And mm -hmm. what it means to be a socially responsible corporation in the 50s and 60s is a at least grudging tolerance of things like labor unions, a commitment to working with them, not simply trying to smush them, a commitment to providing steady employment, at least to white male Americans and their families. And so that involves things like having predictable wage increases, not necessarily firing or outsourcing people right off the bat when times are rough. And it also involves supporting the communities that these businesses are located in. And that could be things like providing financial support to educational institutions, funding certain you know, social or community programs or projects, even things like parks. So it's a, you know, 
in some sense, sort of what we might consider small c conservative form of social corporate responsibility in which companies try to do their patriotic part amidst the Cold War to help reinforce and bolster American capitalism, especially when you're comparing it to other forms of political economy across the world. And, and that, yeah, please go ahead. Oh, no, no, no go ahead. <laughs> and uh, so at what point then does, um, I suppose we have shareholders then demanding that corporations reorient uh, their social commitments, and um, when is that? When does that mo movement uh, begin to take place? So it begins. The shareholder part of it really begins to take place in beginning early in the nineteen beginning in the nineteen seventies, and then really taking off in the nineteen eighties. I see. Hmm. So there's even prior to the rise of shareholders, there's a real sort of intellectual movement among a subset of economists that I spend a lot of the project talking about. And that ends up predating shareholder activism and then sort of dovetailing nicely with it in the 1980s. Hmm. So what this, uh, where this revolution really starts kicking off is in the 70s after sort of the uh, golden age of the New Deal order has come to a halt around 1969, as corporate profits start to erode, you see things like oil crises, rising foreign competition. Businesses for their own, um, on their own part, really kind of make a mess of things themselves by over committing to sort of a Keynesian grossmanship model through things like the conglomerate movement, putting together big combinations of unrelated businesses. Turn out those are fairly unwieldy. They all sort of come up falling apart at the end of the 1960s, discrediting a lot of the ideas that corporate managers know best. Mm. Amidst these different challenges, there's a group of financial economists at the University of Chicago and the University of Rochester who are taking a new look at financial markets and the stock market. Mm. And they break off of sort of regular or mainstream economics because they're really interested in trying to use mathematical tools to understand and predictably model the stock market. The big thing that they discover at the end of the 1960s, they argue that the stock market is what they call efficient, meaning that it captures information almost perfectly and instantaneously. So a company's stock price is an accurate depiction of how it's doing. Stock price goes up, company does something good. Stock price goes down, company does something bad. From that insight, a group of economists led by a man named Michael Jensen, teaching at the University of Rochester, which is kind of an offshoot of the University of Chicago, come up with this financial model of the business firm. And they argue that the business firm is not a social institution. It has no obligations to society or anything like that. Instead, it's a nexus of contracts. It's a place for individuals and factors of production to come together, make contracts saying, this is how we're going to operate. This is how we're going to organize. And its only function is to produce value for shareholders. And that will fulfill the business corporation's mission. Stock prices are the accurate depiction of long-term value. So people come together, they contract, they make stuff. If they make things and the stock price goes up, they're doing good for society. If they make things and the stock price goes down, they've made a mistake. The other thing that these economists argue is that not only is it sort of mistaken, to imagine that companies have any obligations beyond maximizing shareholder value, 
but it's actually a drag on corporate performance. What they see looking back in the last two decades is not companies doing their best to be patriotic good citizens. They see business managers wasting lots of money, building big factories, hiring more people than they needed, um, making corporate donate, uh, making philanthropic donations, et cetera, all to make themselves look good and feel good. They try to quantify these things as what they call agency costs, basically just money that belonged to the shareholders, was being invested in a company that should have been used for productive things, that instead is being fritted away on all these other stuff. So they try and create this sort of financial, quasi-mathematical model of the corporation saying, look, this is what the corporation's about, and we can actually point to all the different ways in which you're wasting shareholder money when you're doing all the things that you're not supposed to be doing. That happens in the 70s. You know, it exists in academia, makes somewhat of an impact, not too much. But when the 1980s comes along, suddenly this becomes a very hot commodity. And the reason why is because the 1980s is the decade of corporate takeovers and the so-called corporate raiders. So these folks are a colorful bunch of kind of opportunistic and entrepreneurial financiers. Think of people like T. Boone Pickens, Carl Icahn, um, you know, these sorts of big names that you might, have, you might associate when you think of the 1980s. Mm. They take advantage of the fact that stock prices have been depressed for a lot of the 1970s. A lot of these big uh, conglomerate corporations are still kind of muddling through, powering along. They're able to assemble a lot of cheap financing, especially once they start teaming up with people like Michael Milken, who pioneers junk bonds. Um, and they use this money, this availability for financing to buy up control of companies that have their stock prices low, fire the managers. You know, Perhaps they try to um, say that they're going to run these companies more efficiently. Sometimes they just end up attacking them, you know, receiving a payout and then walking away. Regard, um, sort of needless to say, this is controversial behavior. Hmm. In the public mind, it becomes associated with sort of greedy Gordon Gecko types, buying up companies, trying to shut them down, gut them, loot them, all these hmm. sorts of things. And you can think of things like uh, the RJR Nabisco case and Barbarians of the Gate at the Gate, a sort of the emblematic version of the public's reaction saying, oh, wow, this is crazy. Look at all this money being thrown around. So it's controversial. Business companies and sort of the incumbent managers of the largest corporations in America are quite upset by this. They tried to lobby state governments, Congress, the courts, looking for relief, looking for ways to stop these corporate raiders. Corporate raiders, for their part, have at least somewhat of an understanding of politics. They might be a little clumsy at it sometimes, but they know that they need something to explain what they're doing beyond just, you know, the money's on the table, so we decided to get it. And that's where all of these economic theories of the business firm really come into play. Mm. They can point to, quote unquote, scientific proof that what they are doing is helpful. It raises stock prices. So if you think in that efficient markets term, it's creating value for society. They really glom onto these academic theories. People like Michael Jensen, the economist who came up with a lot of these, become quite famous because all of a sudden, it seems like they both predicted what's going on and have the way to kind of decode the biggest business story of the decade. And these things start rising in prominence. Doesn't, 
it doesn't hurt that corporate raiders are able to kick out some incumbent managers. And a lot of incumbent managers are really afraid of what's going on. So they see raiders coming. They think no one's safe. The only thing we can really do to protect ourselves is raise our stock prices, keep our shareholders happy enough that they won't boot us out or sell to some unscrupulous person who comes along. And that's where all of this really starts, you know, taking off. It starts becoming taught in business schools, starts becoming taught in law schools, managers start adopting it even begrudgingly. And so it sort of becomes this self-generating engine of change there. Mm. And so there's quite a top-down aspect here in terms of the theorization coming out of academia and then being used somewhat as a fig leaf to justify this corporate rating behavior. Uh, what about from the bottom up? Um, what about shareholder activism? And where, do, um, uh, where, where does that come into your story? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's worth noting that sort of prior to the 70s and 80s, shareholder activism is a pretty weak force in American political economy, mostly because shareholders are quite dispersed. You know, during the 1930s, 1940s, even as far back as 1920s, the stock exchanges tried to make a big push towards having individual, you know, mom and pop investors buying shares in companies. And so ownership was very widely dispersed. You know, GM could have millions of individual shareholders all across the country. And it's really hard if you're a shareholder in Wisconsin to team up with a shareholder with a big group of shareholders in New York and Texas and California to try and pressure the company to do something. Mm -hmm. In the 70s and 80s, shareholder power is beginning or has become quite concentrated in the hands of smaller investment managers. Think pension funds, mutual funds, insurance companies, banks, commercial trust departments. In part because of all of the tools that those financial economists invented to understand the stock market, things like index funds and big actively managed or even passively managed investment funds really take off and they become the dominant players in the stock market. At first, they kind of sit out the whole madness of the corporate takeover movement, but around the middle parts of the 1980s, these institutional investors start sort of awakening and exercising their power, at least a little bit. And at first they're doing so because they're quite mad that the people they're investing in seem to be spending money, sort of paying off corporate raiders, telling them to go away, or spending a ton of money on legal fees and complicated maneuvers to protect themselves from the potential of a hostile takeover. So they end up getting sort of activated or awoken in sort of an angry response to the corporate takeover madness in the 1980s, but once they start waking up and using this power, they begin to you know, look beyond this. And even as corporate takeovers end around 1989, these institutional investors are still looking at these companies and saying, you need to do better for us. We represent the life savings and retirement income of millions of Americans, you know, working people, civil servants, et cetera. We need you to reform your practices, to pay more attention to us, to deliver on the bottom line. And for the most part, this is sort of done behind the scenes. It's done with a lot of pressuring, but there's a few moments, especially in the early 1990s, when institutional investors actually do fire incumbent CEOs 
who are considered to be sort of dragging their feet on, on delivering value to their shareholders. And as these institutional investors start doing this, these practices get more and more deeply rooted in American corporate practice and in American political economy. Mm. Now, when you visited uh, the Hagley Library, what collections did you dig into to help you uncover some of this story? I was looking at a lot of the business associations and their responses to the corporate takeover movement of the mm -hmm. 1980s. So mm -hmm. I looked at the Chamber of Commerce records and the National Association of Manufacturers, the, the NAM collections. And it was really interesting to read those two off against each other. Mm. So the Chamber of Commerce is the largest you know, business association in the country, represents all sorts of different you know, businesses from maybe smaller ones all the way up to big ones. They're also quite popular with the Reagan administration. You know, historians have certainly written about their influence and things like tax policy, stuff like that. So I thought, well, I wanna look at the chamber because they're big, they're influential, and the takeover story is the big story of the decade. So, you know, I spend a lot of time looking through this fabulous collection. And while I find a lot about taxes and regulations and sort of the, the stuff you would expect from a business group, I find next to nothing about hostile takeovers. And, you know, as a historian, you always want to find the one document that changes the world or whatever, but finding a whole lot of you know, finding the dog that doesn't bark over and over and over again can also be very revealing. Mm -hmm. So I go from there and I say, okay, now I want to look at NAM. NAM, you know, this represents sort of the industrial core of the American economy. You know, if you think of the New Deal order, you think of smokestacks and, you know, all these sorts of things. So they represent a slightly different chunk of the American economy. And they have a ton of stuff about how much they hate hostile takeovers. Hmm. And so this is pointing to me, okay, the business community, if we can call it such, is not on the same page when it comes to this takeovers issue. And as I look deeper into the NAM collection, I see just how divided and kind of complicated their lobbying activity is in the 1980s. So, on the one hand, they hate hostile takeovers. They really want the government to help them out, to put curbs on raiders, to protect them. They, they come forward with this corporate social responsibility message. You know, mm. Companies are not just bundles of assets. They're not things to be bought and sold. We represent workers. We have stakeholders. We, you know, we're, we're good citizens. We deserve more than this. And so they ask for help. But when I looked at some of the documents, the NAM board talks about, we need to walk this really fine line here. We want help on takeovers, but we don't want to encourage Congress to make any regulations that could impinge our own autonomy. Right. So they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And you see sort of this fight amongst themselves and between them and members of Congress about, yes, we want you to regulate finance. Those people are bad. Those people stink but leave us alone. And this really points to more of those divisions within the business community. It points to the fact that manufacturers, industrialists, and Wall Street are not getting along at this decade. And at the same time, it shows you that there's a real 
like I said, kind of tightrope that has to be walked here of yes, this regulation, no, any of these other forms of regulation. And this puts them at odds with the Reagan administration, who, you know, a lot of historians and a lot of people, perhaps just in the general public, think Reagan and business, same page. This is the area where they're kind of getting along. In fact, no, they're they're at odds here about this issue. And then finally, though there's not a collection from the business roundtable at the Hagley, there are documents between NAM and the business roundtable, collection of big company CEOs, comparing all the sort of nitty gritty of, okay, we want this, you want this, this is what we think about this bill, this is what you think about this bill. Further pointing to that division between even people you know, ostensibly on the same side. And as I go through all these documents, as I read all these things off against each other, I get a picture of how divided the business community was. And it helps explain the fact that there was no federal relief coming for businesses during the 1980s. Mm. That, you know, ultimately it was going to be an uphill battle perhaps to get this regulation put out in Congress, but it's made even more difficult by the fact that business is not on the same page with, you know, even within a sector, much less between sectors. And so as the heads of a lot of America's largest businesses are scrambling to figure this out and kind of fighting amongst each other over this, the shareholder value revolution is continuing apace. And ultimately they're gonna end up needing to accommodate it as opposed to continuously trying to resist it. Hmm. Now coming out of the other side of this process, what sort of implications did that have for the American political economy as we entered the 21st century? Yeah, so in the broadest sense, American businesses actually do start to resemble those nexus of contracts that all of those academics back in the 70s talk about. Mm. And what really powers that change is, or who facilitates that change, is a group of management consultants that string up in the 80s and 90s, sometimes called value or shareholder value consultants. And what they do is they take those academic theories, they, you know, sort of hammer them out, repackage them, translate them into actionable forms of corporate reorganization. And as companies are confronted with globalization, shareholder activism, and their own declining profits, they turn to these value consultants to design ways that they can reorganize themselves. So what you start seeing happening is companies start shedding functions that aren't considered to be the core of their business. Mm -hmm. They start using workers more as sort of contractual, you know, forms of method, uh, factors of production as opposed to assets. They start going away from things like research and development um, and returning money to shareholders. That, become, that really starts taking off things like share buybacks, increased dividend payments. The other thing that greases the wheels on all of this is you see a real sea change in executive compensation happening, beginning in the 80s and then going sort of through the roof in the 1990s. And again, this is based on these academic arguments that it's all about trying to align incentives. So the academics say, we need to find a ways to get managers to think like shareholders. Managers work for shareholders, we gotta find a way to make them think like them. Academics say we should use things like stock options. Give managers stock options, give them stock, make them into shareholders, they'll start thinking like them. 
to their credit, the academics who come up with this, they have more complicated systems on how to develop stock options. You know, all these things to kind of factor out the noise of, okay, is the stock price rising because of the manager? Is it just rising because the economy is doing well? Mm. Boards and compensation consultants don't bother with all of this sort of fancy stuff. They use plain vanilla basic stock options. Manager gets a huge block of options. If you clear a certain threshold, you know, they can cash them in and get a ton of money. The turn to stock options and the decision to really focus on the stock price creates a great deal of wealth and is kind of, a, and I argue is at the root of a lot of our concerns about economic inequality going on right now. Because what starts to happen is workers' wages remain stagnant or in real terms go down as companies sort of start using them as more replaceable things. They outsource a lot of functions. Workers become sort of, you know, the Jack Welch version, you know, you'll have employability, you can hop to different firms, but you're not gonna stay with our firm for forever. As workers become more disposable or interchangeable, same time, executives and just sort of the higher ranks of the corporation end up piling into stock options. Wealthy and affluent people, you know, think the top 10, maybe 15% of American households pile into the stock market. Stock market takes off, goes through the roof, as it's kind of continued to do so with some interruptions for the last several decades. And what you start seeing is a real widening of economic opportunity and economic inequality as the top function, uh, the top households in America, the ones who have access to investment capital and can really share in the gains of the shareholder value revolution, start separating themselves from those who don't own stock and who rely on things like salaries to power them through, they end up remaining stagnant or in some cases falling by the wayside. Hmm. The other thing that happens is a lot of the middle management jobs, the sort of jobs that you might work your way to off the line back in the old days, those get eliminated. There's a big you know, push against bureaucracy, against sort of wasteful middle management. And while I certainly can't vouch for all of those jobs being absolutely necessary, the fact that they get eliminated really does widen this gulf because you have you know, line workers and then you have managers. And there's not a lot of ways for line workers to turn into managers anymore. Mm. You need certain educational credentials, experience, all these other things to be in the managerial side. The line worker side is here and the gulf just becomes wider and wider. So not only is there you know, inequality in terms of earning, but there's also inequality in terms of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Seems like um, there are always unintended consequences um, uh, of historical changes. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, what really sort of puts um, a button on that idea of unintended consequences is around the start of the 21st century, right after the Enron situation, mm. you see some of the economists and that Michael Jensen sort of front and center start to really regret or complain about what's happened and mm. renounce a lot of the stuff that was going on. Jensen himself, after he sees Enron, he says, okay, you people sort of ruined the system that I had been advocating for. I thought markets were efficient, but it turns out for markets to be efficient, you need human beings to be, you know, they need to have integrity. They need to 
live rightly. And he ends up hooking up with uh, Werner Erhardt, the sort of controversial self-help guru. And he ends up kind of renouncing a lot of his former economic stuff. He, he abandons the efficient markets hypothesis. And now he's uh, spends a lot of time working on sort of self-help uh, executive development things. It's, it's a weird sort of place for him to end up in, but even those who don't follow that particular path, they say, okay, you guys got the stock options thing wrong, or you, you didn't fully understand what we meant by maximizing long-term value for shareholders. And so it shows that while they're still generally happy that it's not the way it used to be, there's a real sense that this is sort of messed up or we didn't get this exactly right. Yeah. Well, Sean, that is a fascinating story, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and our research grants and fellowships, join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>